Welcome, welcome everyone to this edition of Biblically Speaking, the podcast. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and as always, I am joined by my friend, brother in Christ, partner in crime, uh, the man who I think will be the leader after the coming apocalypse, Brian Tiberius Haynes. And as Brian pointed out, I think I'm going to go by Bald Eagle right now. Bald Eagle. Oh, yeah. Screaming Eagle Haynes. Brian Screaming Eagle Haynes. (laughs) We give him a new name every week. And as some have pointed out, Tiberius is not actually Brian's middle name. But I'm thinking about uh, putting a poll up to actually get him to legally change from his middle name, which we won't disclose, to Tiberius. I just just think he needs to be a Tiberius. Seriously, though, Brian... We've got an episode today. I I don't know if our viewers slash listeners hate us, but uh, we put up a poll question a week ago, and this kind of came from a couple of requests for an episode on this uh, that we've received. And we put up a poll, and this was one of the top answers of the poll for what would you like to have a podcast episode on? And that is, has speaking in tongues ceased? I'm going to try to say the name of this particular event, but glossolalia, I think, is how you say it. Uh, it's not how I would say it, but that's how YouTube says I should say it. <laughs> but we're we're talking about the gift of tongues today. And I know you and I have talked a lot about this off camera and why it is that we believe that that gift has ceased. I think there's evidence in the Bible that it has ceased, along with some historical evidence that it's ceased. But why don't you walk us through for just a second what we're talking about, for those that may be the uninitiated and uninformed. Okay, so in fact, we're actually talking about two different things, glossolalia and speaking in tongues. Um, And we're going to probably use those terms back and forth kind of interchangeably. Uh, In the Mm. New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, uh, the apostles began speaking in tongues. And uh, what we're going to elaborate on in just a moment is the Acts chapter 2 very clearly tells us they were speaking in the tongues of Arabs and Cretans and Romans and Syrians and, and uh, Babylonians and all sorts of people that were there that day. And they all heard their own language and they were speaking in tongues. That uh, began in the New Testament, and what we're going to be talking about today is how it ended at the end of the uh, first century and why why we can be certain of that. However, in 1901, a new movement began. Now, now, by the way, Jared, I'm not a great mathematician, but 100 AD versus 1900 AD, uh, I Mm. think that's a lot of time uh, for nothing to be going on. But 1901, a movement starts in the United States, uh, and that movement begins something that they call speaking in tongues, but it's formerly called glossolalia, and it's Mm -hmm. the idea of speaking um, in a language that is unintelligible. Now, I say language. um, First thing I want to tell you about, Jared, is that there have been some scientific studies on what's going on with glossolalia. Uh, There was a book, um, The Linguistics of Glossolalia, written uh, some time ago uh, by W.J. Samarin. Is this the one you were telling me about that did the study? Uh, He did an in-depth study of glossolalia. He analyzed it, he recorded it, he broke it apart. Um, Jared, what do you think he discovered? Um, My guess is that it's not language. Your guess is correct. In fact, he said it is a string of meaningless syllables made up from sounds taken from those familiar to the speaker together more or less haphazardly. 
Glossolalia is a language, and I'm reading a quote from, uh, from his conclusions, Glossolalia is language-like because the speaker unconsciously wants it to be language-like. So uh, the, the now, now that, that that's interesting study. because this guy you said he's he studies languages he's a linguist that so that means he studies present languages he studies ancient languages he studies how languages are formed and one of the distinctive hallmarks about languages is that they each develop their own um, their own sounds associated with that language uh, for instance. English sounds a lot like German and Spanish, and and because it it takes some of its some of its roots from from the Germanic languages and its other it, other roots from Latin like Latin based languages, but it doesn't typically. There's not any English words that sound like languages from the Far East because English doesn't find any of its roots in those languages. That's what we're talking about. If you drive around um, the Pacific Northwest where we're from or Texas where I'm from or New Mexico where Brian is originally from, you'll find a lot of words that go back to some Native American languages. In fact, uh, umqua is a really popular ice cream up here. Uh, Tillamook is another that uh, Chinook is a type of salmon up here, and that all goes back to some of the Native American tongue that were tongues that were spoken in this area. And so you'll see a lot of the the street names and town names are sort of anglicized versions of those languages because they've had their influence. And um, what Brian just said is that the the vowel sounds and consonant combinations that are being used when somebody quote unquote speaks in tongues that today modern uh, glossolalia is really just the same sounds that they've been saying since they learned to speak and that that that's kind of a big deal if you stop and think about it because that means that that the root of whatever this language is happens to be whatever vowel consonant combinations the speaker is is schooled in. So if I were if I were if I were Latino, then it would then glossolalia would sound a lot like Spanish consonant combinations. Yeah, like for example, a lot of European languages. Yeah, sorry, that was a nerd out, but <laughs> yeah, European languages we pronounce towards the front of our mouth. Uh, our lips, right. our tongue, uh, other languages they pronounce far back in the throat. And um, mm-hmm. what's fascinating is glossolalia uh, is manifested identical to Western European language, uh, meaning the, the the place where you speak it from is the same place you speak your own language from. Um, right. Said it's not. It, we're not. We don't intend to be offensive. We intend to be right. direct and upfront to say, um, first and foremost, all, every study there is shows that not only is this not a language, but it's a it's a it's a nonsensical gibberish of that speaker's language. So So what you're what you're saying is in is in First Corinthians thirteen, when Paul says, If I spoke with the tongue of men and of angels, which is what glossolalia is claiming to be, the the tongues of angels. Right, right. Then the sounds that Paul would be uttering according to what we're hearing would today would be Western European derived. Rather right. than something derived from, okay, so so that that posits an interesting question, and that is, does the language follow the speaker, or does the speaker follow the language? Right, right. Which which of course the language is following the speaker. That's what every study right. is showing. A um, little bit, like I said, a little bit of a scientific approach on this. Not 
not even the place where you and I say the real problems exist. It's just a little sure. thing to think about that right away, uh, this is why people don't take it seriously. Uh, people who are un, uh, unspiritual or unreligious, they'll say right away, uh, this just doesn't even sound like it is a reasonable thing. And it's not, you know, it's not from every uh, everything that's been studied about it. So that's just a little, that's the preamble to our conversation, let's say. That's not even where we want to go. It's just a little note to say there's a lot of problems with speaking in tongues today. Well, let's jump over to to Acts chapter 2. Let, let's actually mm-hmm. just jump over there and read that together for just a second. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And so here we go. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the Spirit is telling them what to say. He's giving them utterance. That you, it, this first, uh, this first event of speaking in tongues is happening on the day of Pentecost. It's accompanied by a pretty significant sign that this is not just a staged show. It's coming with this mighty wind and literal tongues of fire or sound of a rushing wind. And verse 5 says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men of every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of, <coughs> excuse me, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Pontius and Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them in our own language or our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So if we were going to to characterize what happened that day in Acts 2, what are the... And we're going to say that speaking in tongues continues today. What what are you say? What would you say are the salient points, uh, the the Cliff Notes version of what exactly is happening that we should be able to see in in these events of speaking in tongues? Absolutely. So um, let's kind of break down some of the elements of what we just saw in Acts two. And by the way, Acts chapter two is really our only uh, biblical example of what speaking in tongues look like. We have some commands about speaking in tongue elsewhere. First uh, Corinthians yeah. 14 is our passage. We, we have a reference example. to it happening at the co- right. at the conversion of right. Cornelius, but we don't know. Right. It doesn't go into this level of specificity. It was just exactly. Peter said, obviously the Holy Spirit is with them. So now, th- so that means that these people who are Gentiles can be baptized. That was the point of speaking in tongues yes. in, in Acts 10. So walk us through this. This is, this is the yeah. kind of the in-depth play-by-play on speaking in tongues. Yeah, so let's let's start off and throw these facts out. Number one, okay. uh, the, the the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles in a visible way, 
by fire, by wind. And by the way, the rushing sound of wind, not a small rushing sound of wind, the entire city of, I think uh, Josephus says it goes upwards of a million people during this period. Um, the, I mean, near, during the festival periods, uh, 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 an entire city heard this sound. So it'd be like a jet it's engine. It's a city bigger than Portland. Yes. Uh, so a city that could hear something loud enough, as I said, must have been sound like a jet engine and fire appears on these people. And they begin speaking in tongues, which we are then told rather explicitly are the languages of various hearers. So number one, uh, Holy Spirit manifested in a very physical way. Number two, they are speaking in languages that are known to mm-hmm. man. Now, Jared, I'll say this. I, I will acknowledge I'm not 100% sure if what it's telling us is that they were speaking in languages and everybody understood their own language or each apostle was speaking in a different language and people are saying, hey, I understand my language there. Uh, they all understood it. Let's go with the mm-hmm. former based on 1 Corinthians 14 for now. I, I think the case could be made either way. They're understanding their language being spoken. And they give a list of the languages very, very nicely, which which are neat because you have very different languages in there. Languages from different family trees. It's kind of an interesting thing to go into. Number three, though, the people hearing those languages and understanding them are unbelievers. They are not people Mm -hmm. who have become Christians. Um, In fact, you could even make the case at this point, the people that are speaking them have not yet become Christians. Uh, uh, as the preaching of the gospel doesn't seem to have uh, really commenced until we have the events in Acts chapter 32 and 39, 40. But that's another point to say. Just to say, though, but specifically, the people that are hearing and understanding are people that don't have faith. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's put a little footnote here and say, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul says that speaking in tongues uh, is something that is given, this is verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14, tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, he says. Because in that moment, unbelievers are hearing their own languages. So to be yeah. very specific, we've got a couple of super important <clears throat> details here that they themselves, the, the details I just brought up to you, are totally in contrast with the modern movement of speaking in tongues. Yeah, and, and like you said, it's that there's there, there's so much there that at, at just kind of the base level doesn't seem to be what we hear today. Now, a lot of people argue that that Paul's instruction, what is that in First Corinthians fourteen about don't speak in tongues if you don't have an interpreter would imply that maybe a foreign language was being spoken there. I think that's 1 Corinthians 14, 28. I just, let me look that up. Yeah, it is. Right. I think that, I think that that's stretching what 1 Corinthians 14, 28 is saying. Basically, if it's assigned to the unbeliever and not to the believer, then 1 Corinthians 14, 28 is saying, don't speak in tongues if there's not anybody there that understands the tongue. There's no point in doing it. It's just confusion at that point. In fact, it's it is confusing. That's kind of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14, isn't it? Yes, in fact, one of the big ideas of 1 Corinthians 14 that is another can we say nail in the coffin of modern glossolalia is that the apostle Paul is Easy for utterly <laughs> the, the apostle Paul is utterly obsessed with the idea that they are not to behave in a way that is confusing because he'll say it, God is not the author of confusion, 
Therefore, they were not to be speaking if it was un, not understood by somebody. That, in, you know, again, and we're talking about the tongues of men. So if I got up and started speaking mm-hmm. German, uh, but nobody there spoke German, I am not to do so because uh, unless there's an interpreter, because unless it can be totally understood by that audience, it is not to happen. It is not to heave. And the Apostle Paul would go on to describe the idea that it's not even to have the appearance of chaos, which right. I'm saying that because uh, as as we see in modern glossolalia, that's exactly how we would describe a lot of these movements is people are shouting. Now, remember, remember, by the way, in First Corinthians 14, Paul said you're supposed to speak in order. One person speaks and another person speaks. Uh, and, and, and then he says something profound that I know you have a, a little more to say about. He says that the, the, the voice of the prophets are, is subject to the will of the prophets. In other words, mm-hmm. the voice of one speaking, they can control it. Um, and if they can't, then one of the points I always like to make that I'll come back and make later is then you need to question whether this is actually a gift from God. And that's perhaps the more serious thing that many people might not appreciate that they are endangered by. Uh, And I I will say a little more about that momentarily. But the bigger point is to say that exactly right. They were supposed to be under control in these moments, speaking in order, speaking in a way that could be understood by all. You've you've alluded to that in 1 Corinthians 14. The Apostle Paul, in fact, summarizes the, the end of the chapter by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. That is his overarching, uh, overarching command to the statements he's talking about, and he's addressing speaking in tongues at that time. So he is saying it is to be done in a way that is coherent, that is that is unchaotic, that demonstrates uh, the reasonable nature of things, and is mm-hmm. constantly understood. Tell you what, let, let's actually just look at this passage for a second, and and I want mm-hmm. you to help me pull this apart as we go. Like I said, I'm going to do screen share in a different way in this particular video because I think it will it will help a little to have maybe the whole thing on the screen or have us both on the screen as we're doing this. And so, looking at First Corinthians 14, and let's see, Let, let's start in 22. It says, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Uh, But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So he's talking about, in 1 Corinthians 13, he told them that the greatest gift that they would have, and we're going to go to this passage later, is love. It was going to remain when all the other spiritual gifts were going to, to pass away. Even faith and hope one day were going to pass away, as he would say over in Romans chapter 8, that you don't hope for what you've already attained or what you've already seen. So, I mean, faith and hope exist today, but there's going to be a time when faith and hope, when we are in the presence of God, we don't need faith and hope anymore. We just need love. Love will be the experience between us and God. But those were going to be the abiding gifts after the perfect had come, and we're going to get to that idea later. But I've, I've had quite a few discussions with people who are, who believe of, they're one of the denominations that believes in speaking in tongues. And I want to say this before we go too much further. I genuinely believe that most people who think that they have experienced glossolalia are genuine in their belief. That I mean, I don't believe that, that it's true, but I believe their belief that they've spoken in a tongue is genuine. 
I don't think that any I don't think there are many people who are out there on a daily basis doing something fraudulent because they want to be fraudulent. It, unlike, and I would completely separate that from guys like Benny Hinn and who are claiming to be able to do uh, do uh, miracles and stuff like that, and and accepting money and bribes to allegedly perform these miracles that are not miracles at all, and they've been debunked thousands of times over. You're talking about a person who has been conditioned to believe that they have been taught to speak in a tongue. And so let's actually look at the instruction here. It says, so the tongues are a sign, not for those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But for but prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So why do we have that distinction there between tongues and prophecy to begin with? Okay, tongues are a sign to the unbeliever that prophecy is a sign to the believer. Well, the Apostle Paul has said earlier in this chapter that uh, of the tongues that they should desire to receive, or the gifts, I'm sorry, not tongues, mm-hmm. the gifts that they should desire to receive, he wants them to understand that prophecy has more value to them as Christians than speaking in tongues. And okay. some people infer from this, and I would agree, that they probably all wanted to speak in tongues. Um, yeah. And he talks about the idea that speaking in tongues is is self-edifying, meaning it's all about you. Um, I uh-huh. want to kind of make this point a little later. Paul is actually warning them that this idea of speaking in tongues can be kind of a vainglory danger. He says prophesying, okay. though, and prophesying, by the way, what we talk about with prophesying, prophesying means speaking for God. Prior yeah, it, does, it, does, the, it does, not, does not necessarily mean future telling. That in a yes, way, prophesying right. it could be from a point of spirit inspiration. And again, I would include this in the gifts that have ceased when the perfect came in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to talk about that more right. later. But right. prophecy might be speaking something from Scripture, but the Holy Spirit gave you the inspiration in that moment to say it. And that yeah. that's the difference between and, prophecy and teaching. Right. And it was necessary. So I, I don't prophesy as a preacher. I'm not prophesying today. I'm speaking no. from the entire canon of Scripture and pulling out things that the Holy Spirit has given at another time. The Holy Spirit is not directly influencing me to say things. I mean, if I go into the pulpit unprepared, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> and but here's what's interesting, Jared. You're actually speaking more prophetically than any New Testament prophet because you're speaking from the whole concept of prophecy. And New Testament yeah. prophets, uh, uh, whatever they might have looked like, would only have a limited range of that understanding. You're better off. You have something perfect, whereas they each only had a portion of that which was perfect. They only had small bits of things to say, whereas you and I, uh, to mm-hmm. speak from the entirety of the Word of God, have the total uh, message of God. They only had pieces of it at this time. They don't have the New Testament yet. They don't have uh, the various things that explain the workings of the church or the you know, the expectations of, you know, uh, of being faithful, those things are still being delivered. And uh, until Jude says in verse three of Jude, once and for all delivered, they're still receiving these things. And prophets are a big part of that. Uh, Prophets are the, you know, the people uh, that are delivering this information to them. So prophecy, Paul is saying in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, has more value to the church than speaking in tongues. And he says speaking in tongues in verse 22 is so that the outsider can hear something Somebody who's not a Christian can hear something and say, oh, well, you know, and by the way, not just to hear the hear it, but to hear something that makes sense to them. Uh, yeah. They can hear somebody saying, well, you need to repent and be baptized. Oh, uh, and it's interesting. I heard that in my language, in other words. And and of course, mm-hmm. that's a, you know, that's a very critical thing to understand of where Paul is starting off with this. Tongues are for unbelievers, 
to hear the truth in. Um, and, and by the way, that is tremendously important because one of the things somebody might say is, well, if, you know, you don't have enough faith to, to, for this to, to be something that you understand. No, that's it's actually the opposite of what the Bible said. The Bible says this was a gift for people that had no faith, uh, right. so to speak. It's an important point. Okay, and, and so that's the distinction there between the believer and the unbeliever. The prophecy, the, the nourishment from the Scripture of God that's coming by inspiration, and like you said, we have we have a greater canon of prophecy than they did. The value to that is to those who believe, that they believe the Word of God is inspired, and therefore they're nourished by that. They're not nourished by somebody teaching something that is that we might call first principles, speaking in tongues, whereas the unbeliever who is coming to you who may not share your language but hears you suddenly speaking in their tongue, well, they might be drawn to that. But then he he starts giving them some warnings here. He says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles, verse 23, together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So if everybody's there, they're speaking in a different tongue. Nobody is there who understands those tongues. Everybody's just... I mean, if people in Beaverton uh, walked in next Sunday and I'm speaking in what I remember of broken high school Spanish and counting and somebody else starts, stands up and starts counting in German. And then we have, uh, you know, somebody else starts speaking randomly in Japanese. They're, They're going to think, okay, this is disorder. And if they do this every single Sunday, then then there's no possible way of getting anything discernible from this. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. So even prophecy has some benefit to the unbeliever here. So even prophecy has some benefit to the unbeliever here compared to speaking in tongues when everybody is doing it. So if one person prophesies and sits down and another person got up and prophesied, well, then they would come to the conclusion, well, these people are really moved by, to share the, the message of God in, in a way that I, I can understand that. And Jared, I think you said something really important that let's go ahead and read this in verses 26, 27, 28, because okay. what you're saying, you just said, you know, and that one person gets up and another speaks. Here is God's specific command for how 2,000 years ago this was meant to be accomplished. Uh, this is mm-hmm. this is. God, speaking to the Apostle Paul, saying, this is how you approach gifts. So in verse 26, he says, when you, uh, he says, uh, uh, brethren, when you assemble, each one is a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Uh, mm-hmm. Let all things be done for edification. The word edification, by the way, means to build up, to make people understand things better and, and apply things better. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three uh, it should be by two or three, and each in turn, and one must uh, must interpret. At the most, he says, meaning there shouldn't be an assembly where more than three people are speaking in tongues uh, ever. Mm-hmm. So, so right off the top, if somebody says, you know, uh, in our church they they practice, they won't say glossolalia. They'll say uh, glossolalia. They'll say, oh, we speak in tongues. Well, do you limit to three? Because Paul said, and this is God speaking through Paul, we can't have more than three people doing it. Uh, that's okay, the limit. Okay, so the, the, the first point was <clears throat> the unbeliever would would more than likely be hearing it in his own language. The second right. point is, so who's the interpreter for there? The interpreter would yeah. be for the believer. So if there's yeah. no if there's nobody in attendance who isn't speaking a foreign language, 
then it really, then the whole idea of speaking in tongues just sort of crumbles. Yes. At that point. Yes. And now, th- there's one other interesting thing that we sort of skipped over. And that was in verse 25, where it where it explains exactly what prophecy is here. It says, The secrets of the heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So even the prophecy there wasn't, it, it seemed to be specific to that particular hearer, that when they were encouraged by the Spirit to prophesy, then the thing that they were going to prophesy, and, and like you said, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, we'll see that in just a second, was going to be, as they were using these miraculous gifts, wasn't really for specifically for their good. It was to convict somebody that what they're engaging in is true. And because it was going to expose something about that person, it might be a message that they needed to hear. It might be, it might be an encouragement in faith. Who know? Who knows exactly what that would have been? It seems like it would have been different for every case. But when you come back to what you just said about the two or three, that the interpreter there seems to be for the benefit of the believers who don't speak that tongue, rather than the unbeliever. And if there's no interpreter, what do they do, Jared? If there's no one there who says, "I." Yes, they're supposed to keep silent. And this is uh, such a critical idea that is utterly uh, uh, rejected, this whole concept. Verses 26 through 33. Now, now th- there is one. Go ahead. I was going to say they destroy. These passages destroy the godliness of glossolalia today. That even if, and, and we haven't even got to the point where Paul's going to say glossolalia or, or Paul's going to say speaking in tongues is going to cease. We haven't even talked about that yet. Um, yeah. But the idea here is that Paul is saying that, you know, the, the, the rules that God gives are utterly in contrast to what modern day people who claim to speak in tongues are doing. And and again, I, I want to be careful about making sure that we say this. I don't doubt the sincerity of which mm-hmm. people who agree. I don't <laughs> doubt the sincerity of people who believe they've spoken in tongues. I, I do think that there is a maybe a self-deception there that they're not aware of. But this isn't about impugning your integrity or anything like that. It's just stopping and asking, is it really what the Bible says it is? That the next thing you see in verse 29, or at the end of verse 28 is interesting. This is a verse I had quoted to me a lot along with Mark 16 and 17 about they were going to speak in unknown tongues. But it says, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And a lot of people appeal to that and say, well, that means he was going to be speaking the heavenly language. And 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 that's the sort of the, the scripture that gets quoted today to support a lot of the modern day glossolalia speaking in tongues that we hear about. God doesn't speak any one language that, I mean, Paul uses that as sort of a... Um, an example of what might be the greatest spiritual gift they couldn't imagine in 1 Corinthians 13, if I spoke with the tongue of men, men and of angels. God understands every tongue. He doesn't He doesn't need us to speak a heavenly language to speak to him. And and basically what he seems to be saying, look, if you really want to speak in tongues and it's not appropriate, then 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 wait until you're alone and go talk to God. It, that It's not talking about forcing a heavenly language or praying in tongues or anything of that nature as, as this passage gets interpreted. It's literally juxtaposed against the idea that this gift, subject to the spirit of the prophet, as we're going to see in just a second, that it can be controlled. It's not controlling you. It can be controlled. If you really want to speak in tongues and it's not an appropriate time, then wait till it's just you and God and speak in a tongue if you want to. 
Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So the, so the, the, the things that are being revealed, again, this is direct Holy Spirit revelation here. Prophecy has ceased in this time, just like tongues. The gift was active. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. So that's the prof- That's the point of a prophecy. And I would say speaking in tongues as well, that it's not about some kind of emotional experience. It was meant to it was meant for the purpose purpose of teaching and exhortation. Now, that is far different from what we see today. We see very a very emotional experience. We see a very kind of emotional uh, outburst associated with speaking in tongues. And here what we're told is that you know, prophecy in particular, that it is it is for the purpose of learning and exhortation. So it shouldn't be done in a way that people can't learn from it or be exhorted by it. And then we have the verse you quoted earlier. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, and uh, as in all the churches of the saints. So we sort of broke that down a little bit, but what are the take-home points from that? If we were going to say... Here, here is what you need to take away from 1 Corinthians 14 about speaking in tongues. Yeah, so if speaking in tongues uh, is a universal constant gift, uh, number one, it was a gift that was used in the assembly. Um, number two, it was done only up to three people did it. That was the limit of how many people did it. And only then, mm-hmm. if there was somebody there who could interpret them, could understand them. And who uh, had a need. Number three. Who had a need, yeah. And then, of course, we talk about the unbeliever that would hear and have a need to, to hear the message that they are preaching, mm-hmm. um, that these things were being done under their own control. In other words, they had the ability to control this. It wasn't as though suddenly I'm struck and I jump up and I start speaking. Um, we might even add to that. We didn't read that far, but he even says, and women are to be silent. So it wasn't a, a gift that women were permitted to practice in the assembly either. Uh, we didn't read that far, mm-hmm. but that was the next statement that he made about it, that that was also um, connected to women in general in the assembly. See previous episodes or podcasts for, That's right. for, That's right. for that subject matter. I'll put a link in the description. But let's tie it Let's tie it back to speaking in tongues. That meant sure. women weren't speaking in tongues in the assembly. Um, and that, this, that also meant that they could this, discipline the gift. That's right. That's right. And that, by the way, is something that you and I are putting a lot of weight on that there was never a time where somebody was overwhelmed with this gift and they couldn't control it and they just exploded saying things. And we say that because uh, our, we, we encourage our listeners, go on go on YouTube, go, go scroll and look through events where people speak in tongues. And you don't see order and control and, you know, uh, uh, and a message that can be understood uh, oftentimes, uh, you see a chaotic explosion that is more akin to emotion than understanding. And mm-hmm. and Jared has said this before, and Jared, uh, this will be the third time, fourth time we've said this, but let's say it again. It's not that we doubt that the people who are experiencing that believe uh, they're not fabricating this in their mind intentionally. The big issue is, is that what God says, his reference to speaking in tongues is, we, we desperately want listeners to understand is completely different. And and yeah. hopefully by now it's become apparent, completely different than the experience that people have today that they call speaking in tongues. And that's you know the what thing this tells we me, people to see here. You, what this tells me just right away when we look at 1 Corinthians 14 is that while 
all three are instances of speaking in tongues. The things that Paul is is warning about using properly in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the conversion of Cornelius where Peter saw the operation of the Holy Spirit, meaning that God had accepted the Gentiles. In fact, that is exactly in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 11, how we are told to interpret that, that here is this... Um, here is that that's the reason why they accepted the Gentiles because Peter said, Hey, we saw him speak in tongues. And the the events of Acts 2. So you've got you've got these three different things. What that tells me is that is that Pentecost and Cornelius are not the same thing as what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Because uh, that Cornelius and his household just started speaking in tongues. Because that, you know, Peter needed a sign that yes, we should be baptizing these people that he being given the keys to the to to the kingdom. He was the first one to preach on Pentecost. He's the first one to open the door to the Gentiles. That was something that that Jesus told him he was going to do. That that those two events are different from what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Totally different. And when you conflate the two, then you end up in this space of saying that the Holy Spirit controls you when you speak in tongues, which is the opposite of what Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's let's spend some time here talking about, you had some things, I had some things that, that are big question marks for, that, that, that raise skepticism on our part about speaking in tongues. I think you had right, five right. and you I had the, seven. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, why don't you kick that off for us? Yeah, the very first thing that kind of drops me, um, I'm going to take I'm going to take the the easy one, Jared. I'm going to take the okay. one that's the uh, that's the first one that's the go to that I'm going to take it right away from you, and that's what Paul said right before First Corinthians 14, which is First Corinthians okay. 13. Um, so let's jump over there for a second and take a look at that because in First Corinthians which chapter actually, 13, which actually wipes out like three of the ones on my list. I know, I know, I know. Like I said, hey, I think it's a great way um, to start the discussion, right? It, it is, but let's let's go ahead and understand this. That First Corinthians thirteen is is probably the most critical passage about. Let me get it back up on the screen here, buddy. Uh, speaking in tongues, and we've already hinted around it a couple of times. Uh, back in chapter twelve, the Apostle Paul was talking about the unity of the congregation, um, and he talks about the the use of gifts and the different things that are given to the church. Um, very interesting, uh, by the way, if you wanted to, you know, uh, uh, we're going to do another study on gifts in general and miracles in general, and First Corinthians 12 will play into that a little bit. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to have but enough was, for this episode, but I mean, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So First Corinthians 13, though, begins by the apostles saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I've become uh, a noisy gong, a clanging symbol. You know, by the way, a lot of people draw from that passage the statement, the tongues of uh, angels. And right. they say that's what glossolalia is. It's the tongues of angels. Well, the problem is Paul isn't saying that there is a tongues of angels. Paul is using hyperbole. He yeah. says, if I could. Uh, each of these examples, yeah, each of these examples he gives is a hyperbole. Hyperbole means an extreme, like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Is that right. It's an exaggeration in the extreme. If I could, if I was yeah. so yeah. gifted with the gift of speaking in tongues that I could actually speak the language of angels. Is yeah. is how we would um, say that today. 
Yeah, verse 2, he says, if I had the gift of prophecy and I knew every mystery and all mystery, nobody had that, by the way. Uh, nobody right. said, I know all mystery. Even, you know, even things like the <clears throat> day of the return of Jesus, Jesus will say, well, that's the Father's knowledge. So, so you have to understand this. If I give up everything I have, every single thing I have, and I let my body be burned up, these are all hyperbole. They're yeah, these not, are all things that you can't really do. That's right. That's right. They're the they're they're the extreme. They're the ridiculous extreme. Uh, they're meant to be something that you say. Well, nobody does that. So when Paul says, "I speak in all tongues of men and angels," you're supposed to think, "Well, nobody does that." That's that's right. the, that's what a hyperbole is about. It's it's an extreme example that you say, "Well, nobody does that." So I just had to put that in there uh, to say you'll hear people say, "Well, no, I speak in the tongues of angels." A horrible misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. Well, and, and now, it's Paul, emphasizing the wrong thing about this chapter because yes, Paul's point yes. in this chapter is not that you can speak with the tongues of angels. It's it's that even if you could, love is necessary for that gift to mean anything. <clears throat> Just yes. like if you gave your body to be burned because you were so fervent in your faith to God that you you actually you know, would let somebody light you on fire because you had that much faith. If you do, if you don't love your brethren, then that's not that faith is really not faith at all. It's not doing you any good. Right, right. Um, verses four through seven, uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, and uh, rightly so, these are fantastic passages for that about describing the character of love, the kind of love that actually fills out, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, the kind of love that fills out uh, the spiritual things. But let's go ahead and jump to verse 8, though. Love doesn't fail, he says, and that, that corresponds to verse 13, uh, mm-hmm. that abides, these abide. Love never fails. But you know what will fail? Meaning by fail, done away with, come to an end. Right. He says, gifts of prophecy, they're going to be done away with. There are tongues, they'll cease. The knowledge, supernatural knowledge, is going to be done away with. Why? Well, he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. We, we talked about this already. In the first century, they all have a very limited understanding. Until the, until the New Testament is finished, until Jude issues those words, once and for all delivered, they're mm-hmm. all uh, less knowledgeable than we are because they don't have the total revelation of God yet. So they know in part, and they prophesied in part. They weren't seeing the whole picture yet. It was getting revealed to them. They were understanding it. But when that total came, that total revelation, that once and for all delivered revelation came, they would the perfect would be established, and those partial things weren't going to be needed. What's it like? Well, Paul goes in the next verse saying, it's like a child. You know, as a child, you do things in a childish way. You need, you need help walking. You need help with things. Uh, the spiritual gifts are that help, uh, but okay. God, he goes on to say, as a man, I don't need it. Okay, so I, I want that to sink in for just a moment, that the idea of speaking in tongues is like training wheels, that it was there because they didn't have the full disclosure, they didn't have the perfect, and it was there to support a nascent faith so that it didn't go backwards. It, it was meant to remind them that they still had this connection to God. They still had this connection to the Spirit because a lot of these people were coming out of paganism, uh, deep, deep roots in Judaism. They were going to be suffering persecution in this century without a perfect revelation from God yet because it's still being revealed through the pen of the apostles and other inspired men that these are <clears throat> these are childish things. 
And that I don't say that to demean anyone. This is, again, the words of the Apostle Paul. These gifts are not for spiritually mature, which is the opposite of what we hear today. That that's one of the big, the big yeah. three that got that got wrapped up in this verse is that we hear that speaking in tongues is something you need to desire, which Paul says in chapter fourteen. That's not really the case. You should de- desire prophecy if you desire anything, but that speaking in tongues is something we should desire, and it's a mark of spiritual maturity that you need to strive for. Whereas what he just said is it's a mark of immaturity. It's yes. it's a mark of yeah. immaturity that somebody who doesn't speak in tongues and I've, I have family through marriage that is Pentecostal that that some believe that if you can't speak in tongues that you're not saved and others believe that it's it's kind of strange if you don't speak in tongues because why don't you have this measure of gift from the Holy Spirit? Paul just said this is something for for spiritually immature people at a time when they didn't yet have the perfect revelation. Now, one of the arguments that continues, one of the the second one that gets wrapped up in this is the 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 Pentecostal denomination is is probably the largest purveyor of speaking in tongues in in the US. And I I don't think that they claim this anymore, but initially they claimed that tongue speaking ceased until 1900. And then, or the early 1900s, and then began again because the word had been lost, that the true message of God had been lost. And that's a scary thing to say. That's a scary sort of proclamation. That's why they're called Pentecostal, is that they believe in 1901 there was a necessity for a new Pentecost, uh, a new event, like in Acts chapter 2, a new event had to happen for a reestablishment. Why? Because apparently when Jesus said, I'll establish my kingdom, my church, and nothing will overcome it, he didn't know what he was talking about because apparently it got overcome somehow. And so, well, we're going to have to start it all over again because something was lost. Well, and that also presents a problem for Matthew 24 and 35, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words. Great, great yeah. one. Yeah. My words will yeah, not. No, the, uh, by the way, this was, a, this was in American history a common thinking in the late 1800s. Uh, Joseph Smith thinks this way, uh, says, well, we need new apostles. We need a new, he doesn't call it a new Pentecost, but it's effectively the same thing. Lots of people believe, well, you know, we can't just go back to the way things, you know, what's written. We need something new and invigorating. And the Pentecostal movement is just one of many movements, uh, the Adventist movement, the great, uh, the great, uh, the great disappointment uh, in history. That's an event in the mid 1800s that a Mm -hmm. lot of people are looking for this new spiritual coming that would reenact Acts chapter 2, contrary to the fact that the Bible says it was only needed to happen once. Yeah. Now, the other thing that we often hear, and this is the third thing that gets rolled up into there, is the debate of the perfect, and that I've known some that were of charismatic beliefs that would say that, well, the perfect coming is the second return of Jesus. And again, where that presents a problem is is where he goes at the end of this chapter in verse 13 when he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That why why am I going to need after the revela- the second coming of Jesus when we're gathered before the throne of judgment and, and then we enter into heaven, why am I going to need faith and hope? I mean, Paul very clearly says in Romans 8 that you do not hope for what you have seen. We don't have faith in 
uh, that in what we have seen. He says in in Second Corinthians five and seven, we for now that we walk by faith and not by sight. When we see, faith is no longer necessary. And so there is clearly a time between these gifts passing away when the perfect comes, which I believe to be the full inspired revelation of God that Jude talks about that's probably, you know, once and forever summed up that there's some speculation that the latest book of the Bible might be First John. That First uh, John, Jude, or Revelation seems to be the one that's bad, the three that are batted around the most. Right. But the idea of the perfect having come, there was going to be a time after the perfect came when these gifts would cease, and then for a time, there the only gifts that were going to remain were faith, hope, and love. And he cannot yeah. be talking about the return of Christ then, because faith and hope don't abide where hope has been fulfilled and faith has become sight. Yeah, the passage I wanted to bring up, you brought up, Romans eight twenty four. you can't have hope for that which is seen. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Hey, hope cannot, cannot, the Bible says hope cannot abide after the return of Christ. This cannot, yeah. the perfect cannot be the coming of Christ. Because and and Paul seems to argue finished. that faith cannot abide after the return yeah, of Christ right, in Second right, Corinthians chapter right. five. That he's yeah. you know he's walking by faith and not by sight because he's in the mortal coil. But once he's put yeah. that off and he's returned to Christ, then he's not walking by faith anymore because you only walk in faith when there is no sight. And that's not yeah. to say that faith is blind. But let me add uh, one more point to say this: it isn't okay. as though this is something you and I are saying. Uh, after this first, second, third century, the early church writers. Uh, all were writing that this was their understanding of things. I was thinking of Irenaeus, mm-hmm. uh, who is sometime in the second century. He talks about speaking in tongues. By the way, first of all, he talks about speaking in tongues, saying it does two important things. Number one, it doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but number two, it was also, it was speaking in the languages of men. Uh, yeah. Cyril of Alexandria, uh, about a century later, says, we don't know what it is because it was so long ago no longer happening. And he also testifies it was speaking in the tongues of men. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. the, so the early writers acknowledge that it had ceased, just like Paul said it would. And they weren't, they weren't concerned about it because they said, well, he said it would cease. It ceased. And they understood it the way the Bible is revealing it to us. So mm-hmm. that's a critical point too. So, I mean, the, one of the other big contentions of mine when it comes to speaking in tongues, and we've already brought this up, is that and this takes an, uh, two of the others off my list of seven, so I'm pretty much down to nothing at this point because you wiped out the three with the with the first, uh, but that it wasn't, there is no indication it was ever in an unknown language. And, you know, Mark 16, 17 does not support that. It said that the, the tongues would be unknown to the speaker, but that doesn't mean that it's in a heavenly language and that it is very clearly not an emotional experience, but as we pointed out in 1 Corinthians 14, it was an interpretive experience that was meant to impart information and truth. And so that presents a mod- a very big issue for modern day uh, glossolalia, that it is an emotional experience. It is, it's not, it, it's not imparting true wisdom from God. It is, um, it is it is simply about it seems to be kind of a shared emotion. So, what else is on your list that we haven't covered yet? Well, one of the things I always like to point out is the nature of how people characterize or frame speaking in tongues today. And uh, we kind of already said this that speaking in tongues was a uh, was an idea for immaturity. 
But a lot of people tend to glory in these things. They tend to boast on these mm-hmm. things. And one of the things that, that it strikes me is just how worldly speaking in tongues has become. Number one, they do it in a way that's very dramatic and, uh, you know, they want other people to see it. And there's a very showy aspect of it. But there's also something that troubles me greatly. And that is the idea when churches say things about glossolalia, uh, glossolalia that that reflect the idea of a very carnal mindset about it. One thing being, uh, you know, you mentioned this before, and this should be very troubling, that there are some that would even go so far as to say that it's a sign of salvation. Um, And that's a seriously dangerous, ungodly... In fact, Jared, I might say that might be the most ungodly aspect of modern glossolalia is when somebody says that it's a sign of salvation, because that's, Mm -hmm. that's something that is completely in opposition to the the word of God. Um, But also the other one that troubles me greatly is when a church says we can teach you how to speak in tongues. And that should be to any listener, that should be an immediate red flag of something very, very dangerous. Um, And that is of course the idea that speaking in tongues has been taken from being a spiritual gift to an That anybody could understand. Right, that that anybody can yes. understand yes. in their own language to something that has to, and I cut you off there. Sorry, that no, you said no, they no, that they had all... to be taught to be to practice it, and that puts it kind of in the realm of secret knowledge, and that that almost has a very gnostic or occult like feel to it. That here's this thing that God has hidden that can't be learned from Scripture. It has to be learned by passing down from one generation to another that is the secret knowledge of how you were saved. Nowhere in in the Bible does it say you must speak in tongues to be saved. I can show you passages that say you're saved by grace. I can show mm-hmm. you passages that, sh- that say you're saved by faith. I can show you passages that, show, that say you're saved in baptism, and, and that's one of the things we're going to do an episode on, is how how is baptism part of grace and sort of reframing this idea so that it stops sounding so much like our work and starts sounding like an extension of the grace of God the way that it should, so that we can actually maybe talk to people in an intelligible way about what baptism is, what it's doing, why it's necessary. But nowhere in Scripture is there a passage that says, you must speak in tongues to be saved. And yet there are some denominations that absolutely, that absolutely teach that you cannot be saved if you don't speak in tongues. You don't really have the Holy Spirit. You haven't been indwelled with the Spirit of Christ, that you don't have the image of Christ stamped upon you. And I've noticed that the further that you go into that, the more people begin to say, strange things about Jesus, like Jesus, mm-hmm. not not just that Jesus is God and the Father is God, but that Jesus is literally all three, that he's, he's modal in his nature, that he's, you know, sometimes acting like God, sometimes acting like the Holy Spirit, sometimes, because you can only be saved in the name of, of Jesus, and therefore God the Father is a construct of Jesus kind of thing. And, and it gets into some very strange ideas that all are based around things that are hidden from the average person that the average that, that the that, let me just say it exactly how I'm trying to say it the average person can't pick up the bible and figure out what they need to do to be saved 
Somebody's got to teach you to speak in tongues so you can be saved. And so now what we've done is we've taken the Bible from a document that anybody can read and understand and know how to come to Christ, and we might debate some of the finer points on that and have to work through them, to something that is hiding secret knowledge among the believers that incidentally was lost until the early 1900s. Yeah, you know, and, and again, let's um, let me hit this hard. I'm going to say for the fourth time uh, that uh, we can appreciate that a lot of people are are feeling uncomfortable. If somebody is listening to this, and they say, wait a second, I speak in tongues, and it sounds like you're saying this is not a gift from God. Uh, we, we want you to not believe us. We want you to look at what the Bible has said about these yeah. things. And fundamentally, the Bible is explicitly clear as to what is the testimony of your salvation. First John chapter 5 and verse 13. John says it as explicitly as any passage in the Bible does. He says, what mm-hmm. is written is the testimony of your salvation. The things that Paul, that John talks about, and by the way, kind of interesting, in John's writings, John never mentions speaking in tongues. It's never a conversation he has. Uh, right. But uh, um, but John says, what is written, the testimony of the things that are written are the testimony of your salvation. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. You are yeah. not saved by speaking in tongues, a gift that... In the first century, is clear, hopefully we've established that, is clear it was only given to a few believers and mm-hmm. that it was clearly came to an end. Now, what it becomes, though, when somebody says, instead of being a gift from God, it's something that I can be taught. Let's think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, when he saw the Holy Spirit, the, the apostles laying hands on people and received to get the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, I want to buy this power. Um, he was a magician. And he is approaching that from a magician standpoint, which is to say one person can teach another person how to do that. Now, in the entirety of the New Testament, Paul never taught anyone how to speak in tongues, how to heal, how to prophesy. Those were things that God gave gifts. And Paul repeatedly says, as God desires to give those gifts, he gives those gifts. When somebody says, I can teach how to speak in tongues, that's witchcraft. Um, here's something interesting, by the way, glossolalia, uh, doesn't exist in, 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 I'm going to say this carefully in Christianity, broad spectrum Christianity, not, not obviously the new Testament Christianity, but broad spectrum Christianity doesn't exist till 1900. That's a, that's a proven fact. That's something we can demonstrate by fact that before 1900, it doesn't exist, but you know where it does exist? It exists in, and I'm quoting uh, uh, Sarah from Rose's book, uh, Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. There's scarcely to be found an example of speaking in tongues in even nominally Christian context for 1,600 years after the time of Paul. And yet, this gift is possessed by numerous shaman and witch doctors of primitive religions, as well as spiritists, mediums, and others. Now, mm-hmm. what does that say? Um, you know, in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, there was a, this there was this huge movement called the spiritualists, and the spiritualists uh, took up and created spiritualist churches where one of their gifts, and by the way, this directly leads into the Pentecostal movement, yep. was speaking to the dead, um, and they would practice speaking to the dead in strange languages. They picked that up from these primitive religions, um, that that should terrify people. Uh, that should make anybody who says, hey, I think I speak in tongues, that should scare you to death to know mm-hmm. that you can't trace these things from the Bible. 
uh, Jared and I have taken that and demonstrated that. But historically, we can see that these things are found outside of the Bible in in occultic practices all the time. That yeah. should really worry people. And like I said, we're not saying that anybody who does it today, uh, that's their intention. Obviously not. But sometimes people can be deceived and people yeah. can be misled and they don't appreciate. And what I desperately wish people would do is not take Jared and I's word for it. Maybe you heard something you didn't like here. Uh, don't, don't, you know, don't take Jared and I's word for it. Look, look this up for yourself. Read 1 Corinthians 14, uh, which is the chapter on speaking in tongues and how that's meant to be. Read it's literally the instruction two. manual for the gift. And then do some research. Look up uh, speaking in tongues uh, and just, you know, the internet's fantastic for those resources. And what you're going to find is that this is a practice. The practice today of glossolalia is not a practice tied to Christianity, but to paganism. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, we got to bring this to a close here pretty quick, but let me run through some salient points and then I'll let you run through yours as well. Uh, number one, what we see is that modern day tongue speaking or glossolalia doesn't fit the pattern that we see in scripture, that it that it is not claimed to be subject to the voice of the prophet or the spirit of the prophet, that it is uh, in a language that men don't understand more often than not. It is not a sign to the unbeliever as Paul said, speaking in tongues should be. The second issue that I see with it is that it is coming from, uh, coming from, that it would be an indication that the words of Jesus had somehow failed or that his kingdom had ceased to be on earth, as he said it would not, and that it had to be restored in the early 1900s through a Pentecostal revival. The third is that the necessity for many groups of speaking in tongues being a part of salvation and an indication that you were saved means that there is secret knowledge that has to be taught as opposed to things that can be seen easily in Scripture. And that's very problematic for a number of reasons. It means that I would need more than the Bible in order to understand what I must do to be saved. And those are probably the big ones to me. Brian, Brian, what were your big uh, takeaways from this? Uh, Well, Jared, you kind of took them from me because those are the big things I would say. Um, I would say, and, and again, that the Word of God says what it was, and it doesn't. what it says doesn't look like what we're seeing today. The uh-huh. Word of God says why it was, and that doesn't look like why it's being purposed today. The Word of God says when it was, the timing that it was to be used, and that that wouldn't be around today, mm-hmm. and uh, that for who it was for. And we can kind of go through that and say, here's what the Bible says, and here's what people are doing. And the, the important point that we encourage any listener to do is just look at what the Bible says about it. I think mm-hmm. I think you're going to be amazed. Jared, I'd like to finish up with a story. Years ago, Go ahead. Uh, I was in a Bible study with somebody who, in the midst of that study, it was a group study, she, she made the declaration, uh, well, you know, the Bible says we have to pray in tongues so the devil can't understand us. Um, and she had made three or four comments like that, and I didn't want to disrupt or anything, but I finally said, can you show me where the Bible says that? She says, absolutely. And so for the rest of the class, she quit paying attention. She went through a Bible. Jared, what do you think she found? She never found it. 
She didn't find it because it's not there. Yeah. The inner class, she stood up, closed the Bible. She said, I don't need the Bible. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I know what's right and just walked out of the class. Um, and it really struck me that here she had been challenged to see if what she thought was biblical was biblical. And it wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. She and and she couldn't she couldn't deal with that. Never saw her again. Um, the point is, is that that's the challenge we always have. Let's find what the Bible says. Let's see what the Word of God says about this. And if for anybody, desperately we encourage you, everyone, have the open heart that says, God, whatever you say in the in your word, which is your word to me, I'm going to listen to it. Have that heart in you and see what the Bible says about these things. And like I said, not what Jared and I say. Jared and I are just guys. Yeah. Uh, see what the Bible says about this. And, and I think, like I said, I think it's going to be something that changes your life if you're willing to hear it. Well, folks, that's all we've got for today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Biblically Speaking, the podcast. Um, I want to give you an encouragement. The channel is growing by leaps and bounds. We're closing in on 700 subscribers, which is a huge number. We're trying to get to that 1,000 number. That's where uh, YouTube really starts giving us some traction. If you happen to watch this on YouTube, I'm going to ask you a favor. Please watch the episodes all the way through. That will help these messages get shared with more and more people. And our, the on the podcast side, we have a lot of views on YouTube. We've got over 200 views almost every episode, I think, that or at least on several episodes that we've done. But on the podcast, is still lagging a little bit behind. So you guys that love the podcast, if you want us to keep putting it up on RSS as an audio podcast, be sure that you uh, share that among the brethren. Let them know what you are interested in. And hey, it's just a way, another opportunity for you to shine the light of the gospel into somebody's dark corner of the world. So we hope that you'll do that, um, that uh, you guys asked the questions, so we answered. <laughs> in fact, we've got another question like that. Do you know what that... I don't think we're going to do it next week. Well, next week we won't be recording because we'll be in Honeyman, but we'll have this episode showing up then. But the um, the other big episode people wanted us to do is on the Christian and drinking. Should Christians drink alcohol? I think they're determined to get people to unsubscribe from us. <laughs> But we're going to tackle that one in the near future. That's obviously one that we're going to try to handle with some delicacy the same way that we did this episode. But for all of you out there who have joined us, for Brian, for me, for the guests that we're soon going to be having on Biblically Speaking uh, for some episodes, I've got to talk to Brian about that off air. But uh, I am looking forward to the next time that we can be together. And until then, thank you, have a good day, and God bless.